We've been in this really fun series. I hope you've enjoyed it these last few weeks. We're wrestling with difficult questions, questions we experience as a people living in some sense in exile. I want to start today by telling you a story, uh, a story about two very different kinds of Christians. The first Christian has a fierce love for his country. He thinks that globalists have come in and polluted what makes his nation so great. And so he became a committed member of a political party that thinks it's their job to make their nation great again. He's absolutely certain that his culture, which was built on following God and his laws, is losing a culture war. And that if people of courage and religious commitment don't step up and take drastic action, then big government is going to come in and one day make it completely illegal to practice his faith. If that drastic action maybe even requires violent rebellion against the government, then so be it. So that's one Christian. The second Christian actually works for the big government that Christian number one so despises. He's got a comfy government job. He's making good money. He's looked at pretty favorably by what some people might call the elites. So, uh, you know, he's got some cultural influence. But because most religious people in his area tend to be on the more conservative side, he's got a lot of people that live in his neighborhood that also don't like him. They might hate him. He's smart. He's well-educated. And he actually thinks high taxes do a lot of good in the world and that a strong central government is better than the alternative. Based on his reputation around town, some people might call him a progressive or a liberal now, picture those two kinds of Christians, those two Christians in your head, and I want you to imagine what it would be like if they sat down for dinner together. How, would, how tense would that dinner time be? Would they maybe just kind of fake pleasantries for a bit, or would they just dive headlong into debate or maybe even full-on fisticuffs? Believe it or not, these two guys actually did get together for dinner, and not just on one occasion either. It happened pretty regularly, and I have photographic evidence of one of their dinners together. I'm going to put it up on the screen. All right, it's kind of cheating here. Obviously, this is just a copy of a painting by Leonardo da Vinci. It's the Last Supper. This is an updated copy of it. And you can see the two followers of Jesus I'm referring to circled on the screen. I've described them with a little bit of creative liberties, but for the most part, it's fairly accurate. One of these gentlemen is Simon. You can see him on the far right, known as Simon the Zealot. And the other is Matthew the tax collector. And I actually love how da Vinci has them pictured as being in an argument together. You, I don't know if you can see that from where you're seated. If you're watching online, you probably have better high-def detail on that. Simon was a zealot. He was part of a radical, conservative Jewish group that was committed to making Israel great again and ousting the Roman Empire. The zealots were known for actually uh, hiding daggers in their cloaks. And they would go into crowds of people, there might be Romans or Roman sympathizers, and with the daggers in their cloaks, they would identify the Romans, the Roman sympathizers. They would slip out their dagger, stab someone in the crowd, slip back in, and sneak away in the midst of the chaos. The first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote this about the zealots, quote, they have an inviolable attachment to liberty 
and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord, end quote. I mean, you could very easily picture the zealots walking around with a don't tread on me flag. That, that's, that wouldn't be like, you'd give that to them and go, hey, we kind of get along with that idea. Now, guess who is seen as one of the biggest collaborators with Rome and would have been a prime candidate for assassination from a zealot? You guessed it, a tax collector. Tax collectors. And somehow, for some weird reason, Jesus calls both of these men to come and follow him. Now, I know, and I've felt it myself, over these last few years, we have maybe experienced an increasing sense of polarization among Christians, primarily over political or culture war issues. Maybe they're happening among friends, in this very church, people in your small group or your community group, or maybe with family members, or maybe old friends on Facebook. And over the last several years, maybe stuff has gone on that has made you go on, I feel like I'm losing my mind. What has happened to this friend? What's happened to this family member? And I know I've had really hard conversations with people too. You know, just recently I was talking to someone, very sincere follower of Jesus. I mean, loves the Lord, has a particular way that he's trying to practice his faith and thinks a particular party might do a better job at helping to uh, see, put into politics his faith. And just recently he was telling me that his own brother was dying. And on his deathbed, his own brother would not let him come and visit him because he voted for a different person than him in the last election. And I just go, that's so heartbreaking. So, how should we navigate this kind of polarization among Christians? There's no way I could give you a comprehensive list. It's not gonna be perfect and complete, but this morning I wanna offer you three wise goals or strategies to prioritize as a follower of Jesus. You can see this in your bulletin if you want to follow along. I also have a bunch of scripture texts I'm going to refer to, and because I'm going to go through them quickly, you might not be able to get to them uh, in your Bible, so I'll have them up on the screen. The first, the first wise goal, pursue unity in Christ through other-centered love. Pursue unity in Christ through other-centered love. The first scripture text I want to start with today is what's commonly called Jesus' high priestly prayer, recorded in John 17. We're going to just zero in on verse 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he draws a direct correlation between the world's capacity to know him as the Son of God and our ability as followers of Jesus to live in unity Together, there's a one-to-one correlation between the two. So what marks this kind of unity? What marks this kind of unity, Jesus highlights, is that it resembles the love shared between the Father and the Son. And this is so incredibly radical. The loving union of the Godhead, the perfect loving union between the Father, Son, and Spirit that has taken place for all eternity 
is the glory that God bestows upon us through our union in Christ. Christian unity is about a shared commitment together to other-centered love. I want to just take a look at a few passages here in the New Testament which might help us give, get a shape of what this kind of other-centered love looks like. Give us some parameters, some, some ingredients. First one is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 7. I've got it up on the screen. I'm going to fly through these. I don't expect you to do your sword drills really quickly and get to each passage. But love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. John 15, 12 through 13, here's some more ingredients and what makes up love, what the shape of love looks like. Jesus says this, My command is this, Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And finally, the last one I'll highlight for now, you could go through the entire New Testament and find dozens more of these, is 1 John 4, 7 through 8. Dear friends, let us love one another For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Other-centered love is a gift from God. This is the primary way that we know we have relationship with God is that that sort of love fills our hearts for each other and for the world around us. Now, behavioral scientists will tell you that one of our fundamental drives as a human species is self-preservation. We want to stay alive. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to stay alive. It's hard to love your neighbor as yourself if you actually don't love yourself. But the presence of sin in God's created order has marred and disfigured our appetites, and it has made us hypersensitive to anything that we slightly perceive might be a threat to us and to our self-preservation, which is a very big problem if we have this disordered sensitivity towards things that might feel slightly like this could be a threat to us. This is a big problem if Christ-like love calls us to lay down our lives for each other. You might not know this, but our brains actually perceive very subtle and slight changes in social status. And it perceives that as a threat to our survival. It kicks in our threat detection systems. You've got this system in your body. It's called your serotonergic system. And your serotonergic system regulates the production uh, and release of serotonin. How many of you have ever heard of serotonin, serotonin, dopamine? These are kind of like your happy hormones, some people call them that. And serotonin is responsible for your mood. Uh, It gives you that sense of whether you feel happy or depressed in a day. And it's finely tuned. Your serotonergic system is finely tuned to pick up on perceived social cues that kind of give you the sense of where you might stand in a group. 
And it might tell you whether or not the actions you are doing in that group are increasing your chances of survival or decreasing it. So I want you to picture a time, maybe back in like high school, or maybe you had a situation like this recently in work. I want you to picture a time where maybe you were in a group of people and you told a joke and no one laughed. Has that ever happened to you or is it just me? <laughs> okay. All right. You told a joke, no one laughed, or maybe you're in a, a meeting at work and people are exchanging ideas and, and you threw out an idea and someone pretty much told you, that's a stupid idea, Paul, okay? That's never happened to me in staff meeting here. No, of course not, but you know, when that happens, you feel it, right? You feel it. You actually feel as if you are falling down the social ladder. And what that does is it actually kicks in your threat detection system. Because if you fall low enough on that social ladder, it's not just like these people here, it's not like they just don't like me. I wonder if they actively hate me. And then suddenly you're feeling more anxious and maybe more aggressive and more defensive. I mention all this to say that Christ-like other-centered love, it feels dangerous. It's easy to boast. It's easy to be self-seeking. It's easy to be angered as a self-defense mechanism. It's easy to keep a record of wrongs, to protect yourself. That all comes naturally to us. But to follow the way of Jesus means that we will risk, we're gonna take the initiative to risk being patient. We will take the risk to be kind, to be the first to forgive, to be the one that makes the first move, to maybe lose some status. We might lose some money. We might lose some power and control in order to lovingly seek the good of the other. This kind of love is an act of trusting God with our life. When we do that, it might feel like that threat detection system kicks in. We're like, I'm losing status. This is getting out of control. But I'm telling you, to do this, to be the one that makes the first move, is an act of trusting God. Because it's like saying, God, even if this were to lead to the end of my life, which it probably isn't, but even if it were to lead to the end of my life, I trust that like Christ, I'm gonna be raised to life and vindicated by God on that day. Most of our intramural Christian political debates, our theological differences, the arguments that we have would take on an entirely different shape. I'm not saying they're going to disappear, but I think they would take an entirely different shape if we realized how much of that stuff wasn't actually about the issues themselves, but were about our ego and our own need to be right. So what happens if we lay that down? We lay our egos down. We lay our need to be right down on the altar. And we say, God, I I want your love to come and fill my heart for my Christian brother or sister. And, And then our Christian brother or sister gets the sense from us that it's like, I am so after your good. I am so after your flourishing that I'm willing to lay my ego down on the cross. If we all did that, what kind of community would that be? And what kind of witness would that be to Babylon? The second wise goal I want to encourage you to pursue is to lead with humility and charity. Lead with humility and charity in your dialogues with others. Let's take a look at a couple passages that might give us some additional encouragement in this regard. James 1, verse 19 through 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, 
Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. This is widely considered to be one of the first Christian hymns. It's called the Christ Hymn. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And this is where the hymn part kicks in from Paul. This is a description of Jesus. Verse 6, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, even if we think of our ego and our impulse towards self-preservation at all costs as the antithesis to Christ-like love, if we get that and understand that, then we need to understand that a fundamental virtue that we must allow God to cultivate in our hearts is humility. If these biblical injunctions aren't enough for you, if it's not enough to just look at that and go, yes, I get it, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, I'm opening myself up to become more humble, let me give you a few reasons why it would make even some practical sense for you in your discussions with friends and family members to lead with humility. All right, here's a couple of scientific reasons why leading with humility and charity would be the better strategy even if you are right, okay? Let's assume for a moment that you've got a perspective, say, on immigration policy. We'll start with something not very um, angsty in the North, at least. You've got this idea about immigration policy, and you feel like it comes from this deep place of Christian conviction and love. You've done a significant amount of reading and research on the subject, and you feel like you've got this really solid perspective on how to produce effective immigration reform. But someone in your small group, let's say right here at church, holds to the exact opposite perspective on the political spectrum. Now let's just say, for the purposes of this thought experiment, let's just say for a moment that you're actually in the right, all right? Let's just assume that even somehow from an objective God's eye perspective, you had the right perspective and your brother or sister in your small group is totally in the wrong. Let's just assume that for the sake of this experiment. And let's assume that it would be for their good for you to convince them of a better position on this. You still want to lead with humility and charity instead of trying to dominate them in a debate. Here's why. When someone feels threatened, remember we were talking a little bit about our fight or flight response, our threat detection system. When someone feels threatened or they feel like they're about to lose that status in a social group, that their status is going to plummet, their brain goes into fight or flight mode. Our amygdala, which is situated kind of near the back underneath part of our skull, it kicks into overdrive in an attempt to defend us from perceived threats. When that amygdala kicks in, I'm telling you right now, our fight or flight systems kick on, and it actually takes over, so the amygdala is situated in the back, it actually takes over control of our, what some people call the executive center of our brain. This is called your prefrontal cortex. This is where your rational, reasonable decision-making happens. When the amygdala takes over because it's fight or flight, guess what happens? This thing's no longer in charge, all right? So now you've lost the control panel. And when that happens, we are physically unable to assess 
new information in a reasonable and rational way. It literally can't happen. So if you come in to your small group and you're like, I know I'm in the right, and I'm gonna make a point, and my point is I'm gonna debate this person, I'm gonna make them feel, I'm gonna, there's a lot of online tacos, I'm gonna own them, right? You know what you're gonna do? You're gonna just throw them into fight or flight, and now they can't actually process, rationalize, and reasonable information, and they are not gonna be able to receive what you have to say. So you're wasting your time. It's a better strategy to even lead with humility, assuming you were right. But guess what? We're probably not right. So we can set that thought experiment for the side. We might be right about some things, but you know what? There's other reasons for us to believe that we should lead with humility. Have any of you ever taken a uh, personality profile test before? Raise your hand. If you've ever taken a personality test, uh, just shout out. What's the name of maybe the one you took? Let me just say personality. Myers-Briggs, I heard that one. What's another one? Enneagram. Strength finders, right? Okay, so many of you have probably taken these for either uh, work purposes, or you did marriage counseling, or you did um, you know, some sort of counseling to figure out your vocation. Well, one of the tests that actually has probably the most scientific backing, scientific support is called the Big Five test. The Big Five personality test. And it measures an individual's individual personalities and our personality and our predisposition across five key categories. I'm not going to go through all of these, but this is, this is kind of interesting and relevant. The first one is openness to experience. And so if you score high in openness to experience, you are more likely to like to try new things, learn new stuff. It means you're probably pretty curious. You're open to new ideas and activities. You like reading new books, trying different hobbies, being creative. If you're low in openness, you probably prefer to stick with what you know and you feel comfortable with. Conscientiousness is the second category that measure, uh, it measures orderliness. So how prone are you to be organized, to be responsible? If you're high in conscientiousness, it means you like to be neat. You like keeping things in order, and you like getting your work done on time. You might be good at um, following rules, making plans. If you're low on conscientiousness, you're probably a little more laid back. You're probably rarely on time for things. No offense, that's just how it goes, right? You're more flexible with your schedule. That's probably the nicer way of putting it. Um, extroversion, how outgoing and social you are, agreeableness, how, how, more, how likely are you are to be agreeable to other people, to be, give them the benefit of a doubt. And finally, neuroticism is measuring negative emotion. If you're prone to melancholy, are you prone to negative emotion? These are the five categories. Now, over and over, consistent scientific research on the big five personality test has shown that people experience very little change over the course of their life in any of these categories, which strongly suggests, and you parents, grandparents know this as you see it in your own kids, it strongly suggests that your personality is primarily determined by your genetics. And you've probably seen this in your own house, one kid that's tend to like, why does this kid always clean their room? And this kid, we could tell them a dozen times to clean the room and you go up and it's still messy. That's just their personality. Now. You can have a little bit of growth and change of the course of your life, but I, I hate to break it to you. If you are a 10 in orderliness or conscientiousness, so far the overwhelming scientific research is you're not gonna go from a 10 to a 90 over the course of your life. You just won't. Maybe you can make some improvements. You can definitely make some improvements. There's also really interesting research on the big five personality test 
and people's political preferences, especially across two traits, openness to experience and conscientiousness. This is really, really fascinating stuff, and it has a point with our sermon, don't worry. People who score high in openness regularly lean left or liberal in their political preferences as they tend to be attracted to new ideas, change, and unconventional values. People who score high in conscientiousness over and over again tend to be more conservative or right-leaning in their political preferences because they value order, stability, tradition. They might be more inclined to um, support policies that they feel like emphasize personal responsibility because they feel very responsible with their lives. They like emphasizing law and order and traditional family values because they tend to be more orderly. Now, if you score high in both, boy, you're a mess, right? You're like, where, where do I go? You know, maybe you're libertarian or Green Party or something. I don't know. You don't fit in either one. There's also been at least two studies that I'm familiar with that show with the big, first, big five personality traits that shows direct correlation between how people score in openness to experience and conscientiousness and where they prefer to live. This is really fascinating. People who score high in openness tend to prefer to live in the city or urban areas. People who score high in conscientiousness tend to prefer to live in the suburbs or rural areas. Now, every election season, when you see those election maps go up on the screen, Who's that one guy? My wife, there's one guy, she's always trying to find him and his election map on the screen, right? What's his name? Sorry, hon, I won't pick on you. But every time you look at that map, I mean, every, every election season, what do you see? Uh, the city is blue, the suburbs and the rural areas are red. Am I right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I love it. Okay, what's my point in bringing all this up? My point in bringing all this up is that despite the fact that we might think our political opinion is the result of rigorous examination, research, and pure rational deduction, the chances are much more likely that we all gravitate towards certain political perspectives because of our personality hardwiring and where we live. So, we should engage in dialogue with others who have differences of opinion with humility and charity, knowing that if we had the same personality predisposition, if we grew up in the same context with the same experiences as them, we'd probably have the same opinion as them, right? So that should lead us into dialogue with humility and charity. And it's okay to confess and be aware that we might have a bias because, yeah, I grew up in the suburbs and my parents were Republican and I really like a neat, orderly room. Or on the flip side, like, I'm really into the arts and I want to live in the city and I don't care if my lawn is mowed or not, right? And I, I really like this political party. It's part of the deal, guys. And if we acknowledge that, we can at least enter into dialogue with each other with a little bit less hostility. Here's, here's something else I want you to consider. If you are in a church community that is only comprised of people who have like a 95 or higher in conscientiousness, but like a, lower, a low 20 or lower in openness to experience, you're all are probably going to get along in politics. That might be nice, but guess what? Your music at your church probably isn't going to be that good. I'm just, it's just science here, okay? 
And if your church community is filled with people that are all like 95 or higher in openness to experience, you're going to have awesome music, you're going to have a great graphic design team, but you might struggle to keep the lights on in the building, right? And you might struggle to get nursery volunteers who show up on time. The reality is, I, I probably just offended every possible person in saying that, but the reality is we need church communities that have both working together. And this gets me to my third encouragement for you, this, this wise nugget of encouragement. I hope you see it as wise. Make Jesus the center of Christian community, not politics or personalities. I'm telling you, on so many levels, I know it would feel like it would be easier if we could have nice little clubs of here is Republican Christian Church and here's Democrat Christian Church and we can all get along really easily and then we can all select the Bible verses and ignore the other ones. We want to select the Bible verses that we feel like affirm the Fox News talk points for the week or the MSNBC talking points for the week and we can all get along. And that feels like on some level it would be easier to do that. But let me tell you, if we do that, then what we have at the center of our community isn't Christ. It's an elephant or a donkey. And we don't want that. We want Jesus at the center. And if we put Jesus at the center, then we better get used to the fact that zealots and tax collectors are going to be around us. And that this, I want to encourage you, this is a normal feature. It's not a bug. It's a normal feature of following Jesus. The tension is healthy. That means Jesus is at the center. If you have other things at the center, it's much easier to get along. It's not a sign that something is wrong. It's a sign that something is right. And guess what? Just like Matthew the tax collector and just like Simon the zealot, we are all wrong about how the world ought to be run when we're in the company of Jesus. And listen, I also want to confess that it is really, really hard to take the words of Jesus written 2,000 years ago to people with no political power, no influence. They're living under the thumb of the Roman Empire as a persecuted minority religious group and then trying to take those words and figure out how do I apply that to living in America in 2023 with a representative democracy with 63% of the population proclaiming to be Christian? Oh yes, and every possible president in the past has all claimed to be Christian. This, this is very difficult. And let's just confess, it's really hard to figure out. I'm sincerely trying to follow Jesus and I realize following Jesus has a political dimension, but what should that look like? So we can take an issue that I don't know anybody that isn't heartbroken over school shootings. I don't know a single Christian that isn't grieving when they see that on the news. So one Christian who's really deeply grieved and sees it as the unacceptable moral outrage that it is might believe, as they work through this, they might go, ah, oh, man, I think the best method might be we can protect vulnerable children if we reduce access to firearms, right? Stricter regulation. And then another Christian who's equally as grieved. They're not any less grieved than this person. And they're not any less trying to figure out what's the best way to deal with this situation because this is demonic and it needs to end. They might think that the best way to do it is to increase armed and trained personnel on school campuses as a deterrent to violent criminals. 
The first Christian might not see, they might not literally be able to comprehend how anyone could think that it should be easier to get a gun than it is to get a driver's license. The other Christian might think, I can't believe that anyone would think a violent criminal is going to obey gun laws to begin with. And they have such a hard time understanding each other. But if we don't step back and go, they're earnestly trying to figure this thing out. And if they then demonize the other, if they fill their heads throughout the week with a bunch of culture war content from cable news and all the talking heads on YouTube and all the political podcasts, and if they fill their heads with this demonization of the other, Satan is going to step in and start to tempt this Christian brother or sister and might even start to tempt you to think that that Christian brother or sister sitting next to you is your enemy, the person in your small group is your enemy. The person in your community group is your enemy simply because they have a different opinion than you. I want to offer you this maybe different way of thinking about Jesus' high priestly prayer, that we would all be one. What if Jesus' high priestly prayer, that we would be one together, isn't a sort of like one ring to rule them all approach? where we all are uniformly, like the Borg in Star Trek, I'm sorry for all my nerd references here, but where we all have the hive mind and we all think exactly the same way about every single thing, that's not unity, that's uniformity. What if the unity Christ desired is a unity that's actually strengthened by diverse perspectives and personalities, all together bearing witness to the Lordship of Jesus? The theologian J.W. McClendon argues in the third volume of his systematic theology entitled Witness that many Christians over the centuries have misunderstood Jesus' prayer for unity. They've interpreted it as a call to establish the rightness of their church, the rightness of their denomination or political persuasion as the only true God-sanctioned perspective by which all other Christians should adhere to. And I want you to think over the centuries and over the millennia of all the bloodshed between Christians the inquisitions, the harmful divisions among those who are supposed to be united to Christ. What if instead we recognize that our personality predispositions, the places and cultures that we lived in, have shaped our convictions and give us one particular vantage point, as if we were, say, standing on top of a cliff in a mountain range and we're looking down upon a valley. We could call this particular spot, our vantage point, we could call it our convictional location. From our own convictional location on that cliff, we see parts of the valley that might be obscured from another vantage point, might be blocked from a person who may be standing on a different cliff on that mountain range and vice versa. What if true Christian unity is about each of us confessing the limitations of our perspective in humility but also not shying away from saying like, hey, from this particular location, this is what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? The more we share with each other, the more we share with each person from these differing cliffs and vantage points, the more we might come to see the whole of the kingdom of God. 
So I think about my African-American brother and sister in Christ who might be living in North Minneapolis, and they had a very different set of life experiences, and I asked them, how do you see the kingdom of God from your vantage point? And I talked to my Chinese-born brother or sister who came to follow Jesus in the underground church in China, a very different set of experiences. I asked them, how do you see following Jesus and the kingdom of God? And then I listened to maybe someone on the West Coast, like a, a single female, professional female, who's now she's really into uh, creation care and protecting the earth. And then I talked to a Midwestern farmer with five, six kids who's really concerned about the way his kids are being raised in their school. And I asked them all, what are you seeing from your vantage point? And maybe we go and say, hey, you know what? I recognize I might be seeing it wrong. And maybe your view is blocked by something. I don't know. But can we keep talking about it? And what do we see together as we look down on this valley? What we disagree on, maybe we can put on the shelf for now, and maybe we can commit to loving each other and working on what we can agree on. And I get that in some cases, some views can be so far apart that it feels like there is not enough common ground to work together. I get, and sometimes that does happen, but that should be the last resort after we've exhausted all of our other options. We shouldn't be quick to jump there first and go, hey, I heard this person voted whatever the other th guy was that I didn't vote for. I can't, I can't do church with them. That shouldn't be our first option. That should be our last option as we've worked through all of these things together. So what I want to do now is I want to invite you, we're going to stand for prayer together, and I want to invite, invite you to stand now, and we're going to pray together because none of this is going to be possible unless we have the Spirit of God fill our hearts with this sort of other-centered love. And what I want to invite you to do is if you're standing with um, a family member right now, or maybe someone that you feel really, really close to, would you just put your hand on their shoulder? If you're not close to them, don't put your hand on your shoulder. That might be, you know, strange. But if you're a family member or you're really, really close, you're in the same small group, just put your hand on the shoulder of the person next to you, okay? Because we want to pray together that God would fill us with this kind of unity and love for one another. So let's pray together right now. Father, we need your spirit to empower us and to fill us with a revelation of your love, the other-centered love of Christ. So right now, I pray for unity in this church, not fake unity that's about uniformity. I pray for unity around Jesus with you at the center of our lives and for the grace to lead in humility as we interact with each other, to love each other, to to. to to take the tension is not a sign of something going wrong, but is a sign that you're at the center. So I pray that you would bind us together and unite us together on shared mission. May the world outside of our church see the witness of our love for each other and go, what is going on at that church? May that be the witness of our church community. In your name, amen.